immediately after, right? I mean, it's just pressed up right there to catch your attention. What? (laughs) The Pharisees come around asking for a miracle. Show us a miracle so that we can know something about you. And a little bit later, the disciples coming around. What will we do about lunch? He just fed 4,000 people. How can you be worried about lunch? What's wrong with these people? The chapter makes you ask. That they would see miracles like this from the hand of the Son of God and then turn around and doubt and question and fear. What's wrong with people that they would ever have God perform a great miracle from them and still worry and question and fear? What's wrong with me? (laughs) Have I not seen God provide? Have I not seen God bless? Have I not seen God work? Why do I still worry and fear and doubt? There's even connections that go out to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes has language like this, that God made man upright and they have sought out many schemes. I think the concept of that would be like, kind of like Isaiah 53, you know, all we like sheep have gone astray. God's, the, the problem is not the way God made us. We messed it up. Or that man goes about in the work of God and he cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. I mean, the irony is I live in a big, beautiful, glorious world that shows the handiwork of God all around me. And I still doubt him. Wow, what an accomplishment, (laughs) right? (laughs) It's kind of impressive, actually, that I walk around in a world so beautiful and still doubt God's ability to provide (laughs) and take care of me. He's taking care of the universe, right? think he can handle my problems. But yeah, I still manage to doubt all the same. And even the conclusion of the book of Ecclesiastes, when it comes down to the end, God is going to be the source of your wisdom. God is going to be the answers for the deepest questions of life. I, uh, I jumped right in without introducing myself, but luckily we already got an introduction and it's boring to talk about myself anyway. Um, I would be glad to talk with you further as God gives us opportunity after the service. But my name is Joel Arnold. My family's here. Uh, My family's nicer than me, so just talk to my family. They're nice. Um, We spent the last eight years in the Philippines and, and love what God has given us to do there. And then specifically right now in Edmonton, our focus, uh, well, we're at at Lighthouse uh, as well, and that's part of our ministry. But the other part of our ministry or focus is at Foundation Baptist College, And that's an ongoing project. It's there at Meadowlands, uh, training young men and women, but then for ministry. But then it's broader than that. A good number of the people that come and join the classes there are interested in studying scripture. And we just enjoy fellowshipping together around scripture. Um, So I'm going to mention this now, and then um, I'll just leave that there. But Part of the thing I'd be glad for you to know about, just in terms of the college and that ministry, is that we do block classes a couple of times a year, and later on this year, May 21st through 26th, we'll do a block class on the book of Ecclesiastes. Oops, I said that wrong. May 16th to 21st. Uh, We'll do a block class on the book of Ecclesiastes. So that goes like Monday through Saturday. It's in the evenings, 7 to 9 Monday through Friday, then Saturday we do uh, about four hours in the morning. But anyway, uh, I'm going to give you a personal invitation. (laughs) I'd love for you to join us. (laughs) I'd love for you to join us and fellowship around this book. It's a beautiful book. It has been life-changing for me. 
And I love talking about the book. I love thinking about the book because of how, how much it goes right to the core of my humanity. And it, it, it explores some of the deepest questions that a human being has to ask. Questions like, what's the point? What are we trying to do? Why are we here? And I, I mean, whatever you accomplish, what if that would last? I, I had a recent conversation with a guy about my age, and I'm just trying to, you know, we're just conversing back and forth. I said, what, what do you think kind of makes you tick? Or what do you think kind of gives you a core for everything you do? Like, this is what drives me. This is the purpose. This gives me a sense of meaning. At the end of my life, I'm going to look back and say, oh, I'm glad I invested myself in fill in the blank. And he said, um, I don't know. I'm still exploring that question. And it's really understandable because it's a hard question. I think the beauty of Ecclesiastes is that it kind of pressure tests that question for us because it's really simple to just write the question off quickly. Like, oh yeah, okay, the point of life and drop something in there and fill in the blank. It's also really easy just not to ask the question at all. It's really easy to get up in the morning and go to work and get up the next morning and go to work. And I mean, and you should, right? I mean, <laughs> but not just that. Not just get up every morning and do the thing and do the drill and watch the decades roll by and never stop and ask, why am I doing this? Will something last? And Ecclesiastes kind of pressure tests those questions because it asks some of the really painful, uncomfortable stuff. Sometimes it hurts. <laughs> Sometimes it asks, asks questions that I don't exactly want to think about right now. And then it brings me around and it gives me answers that will endure and last. John Lennon, the songwriter, told the story. He, he was five years old. And he said, and my mother always told me that happiness was the key to life. So I went to school. They asked me what I wanted to be when I grew up. <laughs> I wrote down happy. They told me I didn't understand the assignment. I told them they didn't understand life. So, I mean, okay, that's clever. The point of life is to be happy. Is it? I mean, I don't want to be sad. Okay, but I start pressure testing that. Like, is it? Is the goal of life kind of to just have an endless succession of positive psychological states? Or, I mean, are there like, kind of moral obligations I have to the people around me as well? Or, and I mean, what do you mean by happy anyway? Like, does anybody just get to decide what makes them happy? If a guy says what makes me happy is to be perpetually high and never need to think about anything else, will that do? And is that then the point of life? Or, see, it's, it's hard. What am I trying to accomplish? What is life about? I don't know if you've ever read the, the book of Ecclesiastes and found yourself just a little bit troubled or bothered by certain statements in the book. 
<laughs> I've heard people say of Ecclesiastes, they kind of come to it. And uh, at certain points in the book, they wonder, like, wait a minute, is this, is, is this right, idea right here, is this a biblical thought? <laughs> because certain things in there sound surprising. Right at the beginning of the book, if you'll look with me there, Ecclesiastes chapter 1. And the book opens up, I mean, just, it's a cold open. Not the easiest opening to a book at all. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2, and we'll start there. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 2, and the words are, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Um, anyone want to take a stab at what you think might be the theme idea of Ecclesiastes 1 verse 2? How about the word vanity? <laughs> I mean, count it up, actually. It's almost, I forget if you count it up, the, the Hebrew words, it's even higher proportions, like five out of eight words or something. But I mean, if you just go through one, two, three, four, five times in the verse, Five out of the words of, 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 of the words in the entire verse, and it's not a very long verse. Five of the words are the word vanity. And actually, there's a bit of an echo of this. If you go to the end of the book, which you, you don't need to, but the, the ending of the book actually has a, an echo of the same thing. Chapter 12 concludes the book in the same way, that vanity of vanities. The, everything is vanity. And it's right here at the beginning. It's right at the end. So the book opens and it closes the same way. Chapter 1, verse 2. Chapter 12, verse 8. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So the, 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 it's safe to say that the book is built around this concept of vanity, I think. Um, it, would be, it would be really helpful to have a solid definition of vanity if we were going to try to understand this book and what it means. And we could break this down. I could look at different passages that explain the idea out more widely for us. I'll just say here for sake of simplicity. The concept of vanity, maybe I'll, I'll summarize this with a word picture. If you imagine going out on a cold day and you, you know, well, and let's say like a more humid cold day and you breathe out and you see that little white, condensation. I mean, I always called it smoke, but it's technically not. It's condensation in the air, right? So you see that little cloud of puffy whatever on the cold day. Um, now, just so you know, that never happens in the Philippines. Like never. Never gets cold. So if I, if I watch this little puff of condensation, I think that's cool. Uh, it would be fun to show that to my friends back in the Philippines. And so in order to give them a little experience of what this looks like, I go out on a cold day and I take, you know, like my thermos bottle. I go out there and, you know, try to do my biggest puffiest breath that I can possibly get and then try to quick clap it in my hands and stuff it in the bottle. And do that about 100 times and, and grab as much of it as I can, stuff it in the bottle, slap the lid on there, throw it in my suitcase. And a couple months from now, I show up in the Philippines. Guys, check out this cool trick that happens. And I open the bottle and I expect all the condensation to just come pouring out like a, 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 a fog bank or something. Like, come on, ridiculous. Because you recognize that the very moment that you try to capture the little cloud of condensation, it's already gone. Right? I mean, it's not like you can breathe that out, clap it in your hands, hold it in your hands, check it out, stuff it in a bottle, preserve it for later, preserve it for posterity. You know, 
It's already gone. It's over. And basically, the thesis of Ecclesiastes goes that that's vanity. Yeah, furthermore, that's life. <laughs> Like life is a puff of smoke, a whiff of smoke, a puff of condensation and trying to grab it in your hands and trying to hang on to it, trying to grab it as though it's something solid and you can stuff it in a bottle and you can have it and it'll be permanent and now it's yours because you captured it. Life doesn't work that way. In fact, the whole experience, the goals, the work, the rewards, the pain, the sorrow, yes, and even the suffering, Certainly the time itself, the whole experience of being a human being on planet Earth is pretty well summarized by a puff of condensation, trying to grab it in your hand, stuffing it in a bottle, and there's nothing to hang on to. There's nothing that lasts. You can start breaking that out in all kinds of different ways. So Ecclesiastes gives us a lot of ways to process this. Here's one. Um, People will try to find some kind of sense of certainty or some kind of sense of stability, permanence, something like that, in work. And Ecclesiastes talks a lot about work. You've got it all the way across the book. Um, You're here in chapter 1. Let's just glance down a couple of verses right after where we just were. And verse 3, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Verse 8, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. Uh, Just a little bit after in chapter 2, chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, you've got this language or illustration of Solomon. I made great works. I built houses. I planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted them all kinds of fruit trees. And verse 7 and 8, I had slaves. I had great possessions. I gathered for myself silver and gold, the treasures of kings and provinces, singers, men and women, concubines. I became, verse 9, great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. I basically got it all done and I had it all. All right, so, I mean, I probably, all of us are vulnerable to this. We are. We are all vulnerable to this in different ways. I would say there could be kind of a particularly male thing about, you know, it's like, okay, I'm going to charge for it in my job and my work and I'm going to accomplish this. I'm going to get the promotion. I'm going to move to the next level and I'm just going to keep my work, working my way through or whatever. And uh, that's a really commendable good thing. It's good to work hard good to pour yourself into what you do but let's say that you could like promote yourself all the way to the top <laughs> i mean let's say you start let's do let's say you do a startup and it goes big i mean real big and let's say that you're able to i mean you're able to be independently wealthy you're able to have one of the largest companies in the region uh, well i i don't know let's go big one of the largest companies in the province you're stacked Good for you. I mean, it's awesome. Praise the Lord for that. Hope you would use that influence and that money well for his honor. You still would not accomplish even a percentage of what Solomon accomplished. And Solomon's Solomon's um, summary of that goes that verse 10, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no no pleasure. My heart found pleasure in all my toil. This was my reward for all my toil. Working hard and working well is good. It's a reward. Verse 11, then I considered all that my hands had done, the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. 
and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. I mean, this really, it stings, but it helps. Whatever your field is or whatever it is you do or, you know, business or writing or, you know, intellectual work or what, however that works out, whatever is kind of the focus of your work and that you pour yourself into, if you can imagine like the furthest that you could possibly ever fathom progressing in that, being a thought leader or being a business leader or having the whatever, achieving the whatever, getting to whatever point. You just, you name it. Whatever is that highest level in your field or in your level of discourse. I mean, if you'll, if you'll go back a couple of hundred years, you're going to find whole lists of people that proceeded, progressed up to those highest levels, and you've never heard their name. And I find actually it, it, there's a sting in this, and there's also kind of some hope in this. The sting of it is to recognize that if I'm kind of like grasping for that, the truth is what I'm grasping after is thin air. And so the sting of it is that, that, that the majority of people probably that go through life will spend their days kind of perpetually reaching out for something that's just a little bit beyond their reach. If I could get to, if I could achieve, if, you know, I'm, and you can do this in like any area. If I can get that to that, you know, own my own house in this neighborhood at that level, you can do this in ministry. If this church could grow to this point, you can do this in business. If our business was this big or I had that position, you you can do this with Instagram. If I could get to 40,000 followers, you can do this with anything. And most people will reach out and try to get to that next whatever that's just beyond their reach. And one of the most horrifying things I would propose that can happen to a human being is for them to get there. Because at that point, they've grasped it. Yes! And they open their hands and nothing's there. That's probably why you have high levels of suicide and such with people that reach some of those levels. But in any case, inevitably, what do you think humans do at that point? If they don't fall into despair, they just move the goalposts further out and they just assume that the thing I really wanted is that whatever next unattainable level. And horrifyingly, we can spend our lives just chasing, 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 chasing after something we never grasp. And Ecclesiastes calls us out. Ecclesiastes calls us out and says, what are you doing? Like, like I mean, have goals, good. Work hard, excellent. In fact, Ecclesiastes is going to go there too. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. Work hard. Live all the way. I mean, live to the full extent. Pour yourself into what you do. You're going to enjoy life a whole lot more if you're fully committed in it than just sort of half-hearted, well, I don't want to try to exist. So live life well, Ecclesiastes argues, but go ahead and recognize that accomplishing things for yourself is going to be a perpetual pursuit that will absolutely disappoint in the end. You need something deeper. You need something bigger. You need something that endures. I could keep on going out to build the theology of this, 
part of the answer of Ecclesiastes is that our work will fade. Our work will just disintegrate eventually. Anything I do on planet Earth is going to be forgotten. Like anything I do. (laughs) But God's work is forever. God made things that abide. Most importantly and fundamentally, God himself abides into eternity. And God gives true meaning to those who know him. There's lots more to say around this. But I think there's richness in recognizing and accepting our limitations as humans. I can't do anything abiding. It won't last. But if I live in obedience and pleasing God so that God is honored in my works, what has been, I think, the deepest answer for me personally, and each one of us has to work to this, but this is a, there's a biblical foundation here that's not just you know, anyone's view. The thing that's helped me most personally is every day to seek to live in a way that pleases God. And if God is pleased with my life, that counted, that lasts, that endures. See, there is meaning in work, but not just in the work itself. It's in the person I work for. And Colossians is going to build this idea out. Remember what I said earlier? That uh, Ecclesiastes 9, whatever you do, do with your might. Colossians 3 builds on this further and says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it for the Lord. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. We get out there and we work hard and we work well because God is watching. And I want the God of heaven to look down and see my activity and for him to find pleasure in what I do. That God doesn't measure the relative success of my life based on whatever countables I can come up with. Whatever metrics would be the standards in my industry. God doesn't look at the metrics and say, how much revenue were you able to generate? How many books or articles were you able to generate? How many follows were you able to accumulate? God looks down and he finds genuine, the God of the universe finds pleasure in the things we do when we walk in a way that is pleasing in his sight. And I can get up every morning and say, you know what I'm gunning for today? I'm gunning for God to be pleased with what I did. So at the end of the day, God would say, well done, good and faithful servant. That was a, way, a day well spent. That was a decade well used. That was a, a life well invested. Not perfect, but it was well invested. And I find pleasure and joy in what you're doing. Now that's meaning the God of the universe who made it all evaluating my works. We could go down another track. How about injustice and oppression? Um, It's really easy when we live in a a relatively rich, easy society to uh, kind of look around and be like, okay, things work well enough. Um, We can even see certain things that feel unfair in our society, and those things can frustrate us. So the, the whole, let's say, I'll put us back in a workplace context. Let's say you work really hard and you're pouring yourself into your job, and you're really trying to do a good job, and uh, then the promotion goes to the guy who's lazy, the guy who doesn't really try, because honestly, he just, the boss likes him. They're friends. They play golf together. So it's like, you know, I mean, I, I, I'm actually better at this than that guy is. 
I actually do better work than he does. And I mean, this is, I thought this is supposed to be a meritocracy, right? I thought if I work hard and I'm honest and I come to work every day and I'm dependable and I do a good job and I'm intelligent about the way I do it, I thought I'm supposed to advance. Now I realize, no, the way it actually works is make sure you play golf with the boss. And that's frustrating. And there are all kinds of forms of this. Just, just you know, you can look across at somebody else and say, their situation is life, life is something I wanted. I, this could be as, you know, I wanted to be married. I didn't plan on being single. I wanted to have children. I wanted to have children that liked me. They grew up and they don't seem to. I wanted my children to live nearby. I wanted my children to have children. I wanted to be able to spend time with my grandkids. I mean, you can just roll down the list. There's a fact. I didn't plan on having this disability. I didn't plan on dealing with this illness. I didn't plan on having this problem, this financial problem, or this practical problem. And so what did I do to deserve this? Like, did I, did I, did I mess it up somewhere back in the, the further down the road somewhere, and God just sends lightning bolts on me? And if not, why am I dealing with this junk? because this hurts right now and I want it to go away. You can kind of widen the lens out from there, though. I mean, you could read the news or maybe don't. And there's all kinds of injustice going on on planet Earth, and it's constant. If you're tempted to feel like, you know, the last three years, it's just really not been fair. It's been bad. It's been a bad time on planet Earth. We got to read more history. Because it's just always been a rough ride on planet Earth. I'm going to guess that the the decades before that, we kind of lucked out for an extended period of time. But Earth has always been full of sorrow. Man is born to trouble as sparks fly upward. And there's a part of you that just kind of, honestly, sometimes just kind of gets tired. (laughs) Just kind of tired. Tired of the struggle, tired of the injustice. Is there any solution for any of this? Or is it just like, well, stinks to be human? Is there there an actual solution that's going to come to deal with all of this mess? What is the solution for the evil of this world? Well, I mean, Ecclesiastes really helpfully comes in and just recognizes it straightforward. We have a statements in Ecclesiastes that will acknowledge the, the injustice. And you read some of those and you go, yeah, 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 what about that? Ecclesiastes 3.16, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, what that would be talking about would be the place where you expect to see justice. In the place of justice, even there was wickedness. In the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. There's a lot of talk these days about uh, systemic injustice in the legal system or the courts or the political system. There's a lot of anger that happens any time that some kind of impropriety or just nasty sin comes out of a, a, a church or a synagogue or, or anything like that. And, and you know what? I think Ecclesiastes recognizes that this has been happening since the beginning. That, that guess what? Bad news. Judges are people too. That's unfortunate. So are politicians. Oh, we already knew that one. And lawyers are also people. So are pastors. So are, I mean, you know, the, the church, we could keep the church 
from having any problem with sin if we just left the people out. But I came here this morning and so did you. And that means that this is now an imperfect place because you and I are here. And what that means then is that, that there is no place on planet Earth, honestly, where you can go. Nowhere. There is nowhere on planet Earth that will be a perfect, airtight refuge from the brokenness of humanity. There is nowhere you can go like that. Yeah, well, I could go on the top of a mountain somewhere and it's just me on the top. No, you're there. That's what I'm talking about. Now the top of the mountain has problems because you showed up. The problem is within us. And there's not like a place of righteousness I can go to that will eliminate any of this. Ecclesiastes 4, I saw all the the oppressions that are done under the sun. Behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power. This this sounds like some of the insights that that have turned off in, in odd ways recently, but there's a legitimate insight here. The oppressors have power and there's no one to comfort the oppressed. This is sound, uh, this is sound excessively cynical to you, verse two. And I thought the dead who are already dead, more fortunate than the, li- than the living who are still alive, but better than both is he who has not yet been and has not yet seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. I mean, it is honestly, I admit, it sounds pretty cynical. I'll say in passing here, there are other passages across the book of Ecclesiastes that are troubling like this. Ecclesiastes seven sixteen to 18, be not over-righteous, neither be overly wicked. You're like, wait, <laughs> is Solomon telling you to try to be kind of like moderately righteous, moderately wicked, you know? <laughs> like, don't be too much obedient to God. Don't be too disobedient. Just kind of be in the middle normal. Well, I'll go ahead and tell you, no, that's not what that means. Um, I won't be able to break down what it does mean. And uh, this, I apologize for this, but, you know, this is just one of those annoying things that people do. If you want to hear about passages like this, may I invite you to take a class on the book of Ecclesiastes, May 21st to 26th? Because at that point, I do have more time to talk about it, and I'm happy to tell you what it does mean. Another one that works like this is Solomon makes a statement that finding a wise man is basically one out of a thousand, so, I mean, that, and that, I think that's really helpful, actually. I mean, a, a thousand people you meet and, and to find a truly wise person, we're talking like 0.1% to come up with that kind of person. Um, I think that's helpful. I'd like, to, I'd like to hope that within the church, the ratio is a little higher. Um, we have God's wisdom. And so we ought to hope within the church that our ratio can be higher. But yeah, wisdom is rare. It's precious. When you find a friend, when you find a leader, someone who is truly wise and it shows, and wisdom, by the way, has to be defined by God's words. When you find a person like that, hang on to them, (laughs) right? Because that's a really rare thing. You can find those friends, those people you got to hang on to. Okay, then it turns in a direction that's unexpected. He says, one out of a thousand I have found. He says, but a woman among these I have not found. You're like, whoa, excuse me? Um, So what it it sounds like, Solomon has a severe misogyny problem. 
That's not what it means. This one, I'll go ahead and tell you some of what's going on. In the context, he's talking about prostitution or like in the brothel. And in the context, then what he's saying is, it's hard enough to find a wise person anywhere you go. You're definitely not finding wise people when you go to the place of fornication. There's like no wise people there at all. And so in context, you follow the flow of thought and you're like, oh, okay, all right, I see that now. But you read some of those passages and and as you read Ecclesiastes, it can really bother you. Passages that seem to be so cynical you're wondering, is Solomon, has, has Solomon gone off the rails a little bit here? Right here, this discussion of oppression and judgment. In a way, Ecclesiastes kind of leaves you in a place of frustration with it. It's like, the world's not fair, and that's the way it is. It leaves you with this sense of, is there a solution to this problem? I think you know the biblical story, and the biblical story is that judgment will come eventually. That's also right here across Ecclesiastes. So Ecclesiastes 3.15, God will judge the evil and the wicked. Ecclesiastes 3.17, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. There is a time for every matter and for every good work. The judgment will eventually come. God will set it straight. There's more to the story than the biblical story. Jesus entered into our suffering. So justice stands at the heart of the biblical story. In the meantime, we wait, we struggle, it hurts. And I think there is, as I said earlier, with Ecclesiastes, both sting and healing. Part of the sting for someone saying to you, yeah, life is unfair. It's frustrating. It hurts. Then you die. Some of the sting of that is to say, hey, 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 you know, it hurt badly enough as it was. And the only solution I had so far was just try not to think about it. Try not to think about how frustrating it is. That's the sting of Ecclesiastes. See, but I I also said there's hope in Ecclesiastes. And the hope goes, yeah, you see the judgment, you see the oppression, you see the frustration, just so you know. Judgment is coming. God will set the world straight. It will be right. Hold on. Just hold on. Wait. Like, yeah. And this seems to be taken long enough as it is. No, God, wait. Just wait. Wait. It's going to come. God will make things right. Is there any hope in Ecclesiastes then? I mean, I've, I've, I've kind of hinted at some hope here and there, but it kind of seems pretty negative so far. A lot of stuff about, you know, oppression, judgment, frustration, everything will fall apart. You won't be remembered, uh, then you die. So, I mean, is that it? There's a really interesting pattern across the book. I'm just going to show you one of the passages. If you look with me at Ecclesiastes chapter 9, the pattern I'm about to show you is it's kind of stated climactically here. But it's actually, I would argue, it's actually the structural pattern of the book. So as you run through the book, it happens, I don't remember the exact number, at least six or seven times. And it's kind of the chorus to the song, right? That idea, like you 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 sing the verse and the chorus, sing the verse and the chorus. So the verse changes each time, but the chorus comes back and the chorus is like the theme that you're returning to. And the development of that as you go through a song or something with that kind of structure is it's like, okay, look at this perspective. But that perspective, ultimately, this solution. Look at this perspective, that 
this same solution. That, this, everything's coming back and all, it's like hubs on a wheel. Everything comes back to the center, right? The center, the chorus. Well, here's the chorus for the whole book of Ecclesiastes. With all of its cynicism, all of its despair, its frustration, vanity of vanities and all of that. Ecclesiastes 9, verse 7. Go, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. In other words, I mean, it is saying, enjoy your life, live well. Enjoy life with a woman whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun because that is your portion in life. Portion, the notion is that's what God has given you in life to live out the days on planet earth, enjoying it. That's your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hands find to do, do it with your might for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Shaul in the grave to which you're going. And see, now this is really, wow, okay. I mean, so far I was tempted to think Ecclesiastes is like the depressing book of the Bible. You know what, ironically, if you just do this statistically and you go for the concept of joy, enjoyment, and that kind of thing, guess what? Ecclesiastes is the book of the Bible that talks the most, I mean, like by a long shot, talks the most about joy and enjoyment and pleasure and beauty. This is not like the cynic's book. It's not like the cynic's book. This is not like the, the just give in to depression and, and, and you know, go to the gutter. The, the book is actually pressing you with a lot of stuff that hurts. Ooh, ooh, hey, can, can you take it easy on me? I mean, can you stop there? That's a little, mm, that hurts. It presses you with stuff that hurts and then it turns around and it says, and life is beautiful. Love it. Thank you. Well, I might find it easier to love it if you would stop hurting me. No, actually, you wouldn't. Because here's part of the beauty of the book. The beauty of the book is that it takes the kind of simple and uh, platitude, the simple platitudes, the simple easy answers, the passing like, oh, yeah, just try to be happy kind of solutions that we band-aid over the top of our problems. It takes away the nice greeting card theology that kind of helps you feel better for the next five minutes. It strips away the temptation to just anesthetize ourselves with entertainment. Like, oh, life hurts too bad. Let me distract myself so I don't think about it. It strips away our disguises hiding behind all of the, the Folly that, 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 that fakes out a, a kind of a solution. It strips all of that away. And it says to you, okay, now you're going to have to find a solution that actually lasts. Don't just band-aid it. Don't just anesthetize it. I mean, even in terms of substance abuse, like, okay, I'll just, I'll just blow up my mind so I don't have to think about my problems or the pain of it. Like, that's obviously and nakedly foolish but not really that fundamentally different from some of the solutions that I run to, to try to distract myself from thinking about the realities of life. And Ecclesiastes won't let me get away with that. That's why you have this kind of language in Ecclesiastes 12, verse 11. And you can look with me at Ecclesiastes 12. This is the the last section I want to look at with you. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads, 
And like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They're given by one shepherd. I love this verse. There's so much richness in it. The notion of goads. I mean, that's what I say earlier when I, when I said it, it stings, but it also heals. This is the stinging side. And the notion of the goat is, you know, like I'm, I'm like walking comfortably down the street. And that's like, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. You know, I got my coffee. I'm happy. It's nice weather. It's good. Nothing hurts currently. <laughs> Great. Everything's fine. Right. And then at some point, hey, ow, could you not please? I mean, I, until now I was doing fine. Seriously. And, and how about, it's, it's, it's not just as, as literal, as direct as, you know, somebody poking you in the back. It's actually all around you and within you. Life does that. Right? I mean, so now I'm walking down the street and it's like, oh, I got my coffee and it's a nice day and everything. You know, my knee hurts. <laughs> right? Oh, that problem enters my mind. Oh, I just got a text. Oh, oh. Right? Yeah, and life does, like, life is prickly. Life is prickly. And so is Ecclesiastes, because it's true to life. And Ecclesiastes pokes and prods, and it kind of hurts sometimes. And to be honest, it's easier sometimes just not even to bother with all of the prods of Ecclesiastes. Like, in some ways, it's easier to just step away. Like, I'd rather not think about what Ecclesiastes is pushing me to think about, because this is ascetic. It's breaking down my nice, easy solutions for life, and I'd rather just avoid the whole thing. See, that's not the way of wisdom, honestly, though. Because I kind of need those nice, anesthetized solutions. I need those to be dissolved away. See, but if I just, all I do is go down that track, and I, you know, I could spend like the whole sermon just going negative, negative, negative. Then you get to the end, you're like, great, let's go home. Got the week in front of me frustrating work won't last anyway and you know i'm getting nowhere but i'm sure i'm getting tired in the process you're going to need something to root you and you have that two verse 11 the words are like of the wise are like goads but they're also like nails firmly fixed so you don't just slide off into nihilism you don't just slide off into despair and depression I mean, some of the kind of cynical, depressing thoughts you've had about life, they're in Ecclesiastes. They're there. And, and actually, there's a sort of hope in that. You go like, oh, ha, huh, wow, cool. Someone else has thought this thought before. That's encouraging. And then it turns around and it says, enjoy life, love life, be grateful for life. Life is good. And even that has richness to it. Somebody had these same acerbic, cynical, acidic thoughts that I've been tempted by sometimes. Somebody has explored that world of depression and they came out of it and they said, and life is good. So I'm not the first one ever to struggle with that. And I'm not left there either. There is hope. And in fact, the hope is in the last part of the verse. The words of the wise are like goads, like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They're given by one shepherd. In my edition, my translation, what I'm reading here, the word shepherd is capitalized. I think that's right. If you want to fast forward and you jump to the New Testament, you're going to hear Jesus saying things like, do not call many men fathers. Do not call many men teachers. You have one teacher, he says, the Messiah. 
If you fast forward to 1 Corinthians, you're going to read that we have received in Jesus Christ wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. That the, that the source of wisdom ultimately is God alone. And he gives me both the goads that frustrate my kind of foolish, facile solutions thinking about life. He strips away the band-aids, but then he gives healing, real healing, true wisdom. And that wisdom starts in verse 13. I mean, it's in the whole book, but verses 13 and 14 are the summary of the whole book. You can hear it. Chapter 12, verse 13, the end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. That language, the whole duty of man, it's actually even a kind of a richer idea. This is the everything for mankind. This is the all. I started out early asking questions like, what's the point of life or what are you trying to accomplish? I mean, if whatever I get is going to be, whatever I do or accomplish is going to be ground to powder by the sands of time anyway, what's the point? Why struggle? Why work? Vanity of vanity, Solomon says. Everything is vanity. Okay, well, if that, might as well sleep in bed with painkillers and, you know, binge on Netflix for the rest of my days. And the answer is no. Here's the everything for mankind. Here's the whole point of humanity's existence. Fear God and keep his commandments. Why? Because God knows you. He made you. He, he knows humanity. I mean, the, the, the analog or the, the illustration would be the equivalent of I'm having some kind of problem with my car. I could either just like get a hammer and start banging on things underneath the hood. I have no idea what they are, but I'll just hammer into some stuff and figure maybe that'll fix it. Or I could try to find somebody who knows something about cars. I could even maybe get out the manual that was written by the people who designed the car. Or even better, if I had an engineer walk right up to the car, the guy that was in the process of designing the machine I'm standing over, and I could talk to that guy, there's a better chance that he'll tell me how to fix the car, how to get the thing running, how to use it well. There's a better chance that listening to the instructions will work out. Versus, I mean, alternatively, I, you know, I could get a, car, a hammer and start banging around. <laughs> okay. And what if there is a person who made you, who made all of humanity? He didn't just make that, he made the world. He knows how it works. He wired you. I mean, he actually wired you on the inside. The, 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 the emotions, the desires, the struggles, the pain, the sorrow, the tension... The questions you ask, like all that stuff, like he wired all that up. And the stuff that's going on or the, the, the uncertainties and the feeling, I, how do I deal with this? How do I solve? How should I react? I don't, I don't, you ever feel like, I don't know that I get life. It's like, he does. He made it. He's been watching it for thousands of years and he knows everything. There's a pretty high chance that his instructions about life are going to work out better than just getting under the hood and banging around with a hammer. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the point of man. Because God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. There's a judgment coming. God will unsort it all. He will tell us the good from the evil. He will tell us the point of it all. And even in terms then of how I live in the meantime, 
knowing that there's a God who will, who will evaluate my life gives me meaning that's richer, deeper, more precious than how many dollars can I pack into my bank account? How many people can I convince that I'm an interesting person? How many friendships can I accumulate? How many jobs can I accomplish? I have a God in heaven who evaluates my works and he will declare it good. You have a week in front of you. You're going to work. Frustrating stuff's going to happen. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's a, this next week, you're going to work on things, you're going to pour yourself into something, and then in certain ways or whatever, you're going to see it go poof. It's going to be frustrating. Stuff's going to happen this week that'll cause stress for you, disappointments, annoyances. You're going to probably get an email you don't like. You're probably going to get a text you weren't caring to read, you'd, you'd rather not have received. You're going to have thoughts and struggles that you wish would somehow go away. You got a week in front of you and good stuff and bad stuff's going to come. You're also this week, you're going to have lovely conversations with kind people. You're going to eat good food this week. I mean, you're going to eat stuff that's going to taste good. It's going to be nice. You're going to sleep this next. Sleep is nice. Right? You're, you're going to, if you've got a person you love, you live life together with, you're going to hold that person's hand this next week. I hope you should. And, and you're going to talk to people that you care about. You're going to talk to people maybe that you don't know. You could be friendly to people in the grocery store this week. And, you know, that could kind of help them and help you. It's going to be a lot of nice stuff this week, too. Hard stuff and nice stuff. You know what's going to bring meaning to this next week? There's a God in heaven, and he knows how you work. And if you could keep him at the center of your thoughts this next week, if the lens for this next week was him, then this next week would have been lived well. Live this next week in a way that pleases God. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the point of being human. <laughs> because someday you'll stand before him and he'll evaluate all your works. And if you've walked with him, and if you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, you'll have the joy of seeing him. I really would hope and want that you would hear from him. Well done, good and faithful servant. Live this week so that he would be pleased. Let's pray. Father, thank you for Ecclesiastes and wisdom. Thank you that there is a point to life. Thank you that there is a way to live it well. We look ahead at a week that has a lot of complexities, most significant among them ourselves. And we acknowledge already that we will likely fail this next week. We also acknowledge that you have given us wisdom to live well. I pray that you would help us to be mindful of your commandments. I pray that you would be, help us to be mindful of what you want this next week. That horror, that, that we would go through this next week and, and our concerns be, what can I squeeze out of the rock of this week? No, instead, if we could go through this week and have the joy of serving you and, and loving you and walking with you and the joy of knowing your smile above the things that we do this coming week. We desperately want your help. We desperately beg your guidance we pray for your enablement that we would live this next week well 
and the decade, decades, lifetime to follow until we see your face. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Joel. Let me encourage you to uh, keep your heads bowed and eyes closed. And why don't you take the next few moments